In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. So it's been a while since um, we've had the um, the Bible study. We took a break for St. Mary's fast and the revival. Um, happy St. Mary's feast to all of you. Um, God willing, today we're going to start a new book um, based on the, the poll that was done of what books um, that you guys would like to study next. Um, so we're going to be studying First and Second Timothy. Um, so I want to give a little background about this book. Um, so uh, Timothy, um, he was a bishop. He was a disciple of St. Paul. He believed in Christ through the preaching of St. Paul. That's why he became a disciple of St. Paul in the city of Lystra in 46 AD. So if you read in the book of Acts where um, uh, St. Paul is going in his three missionary journeys, and the very first missionary journey, he travels to a city called Lystra, and actually in that city he is, um, he is stoned uh, and cast out of the city. Um, Timothy was one of the people who converted um, in Lystra during the first missionary journey. We know that his father was Greek and his mother was Jewish. Um, we don't know who his father was. Um, and he probably died when St. Timothy was very young. His mother is, is mentioned and his grandmother is mentioned as well. Um, his mother's name is Eunice and his grandmother's name is Lois. Um, and they were both uh, Jews. They're the ones who brought him up um, and taught him the scriptures. Um, but he was not circumcised, and this became uh, an issue actually uh, later during the time of his ministry uh, in the book of Acts when St. Paul is bringing St. Timothy with him uh, to minister. Uh, there was at the time a controversy among the Jews of whether um, the people should be circumcised or not and whether circumcision was necessary for salvation. And even though St. Paul was adamantly against the idea that circumcision was necessary for salvation, but he knew that in order for St. Timothy to be accepted by them, in order for him to be able to do his, his ministry, that he would need to be circumcised. So he, he allowed um, St. Timothy actually to be circumcised as an adult. Um, uh, because, again, he, he was not as a child. He was, his mother was Jewish. His father was Greek. He was not circumcised as a child. But he was circumcised later on um, just for the sake of the fact that he would be accepted for the purpose of ministry, not because um, it was necessary in any, by any means, but simply because it was, it was, it was going to make his, his job easier, um, if he were, to be accepted by the people. Um, uh, in the, his second missionary journey, St. Paul found him to be of good faith, and he was helpful to him in his journey. Um, Timothy was known to be pious among the believers. This is in Acts chapter 16, and he was chosen to accompany St. Paul. Um, Timothy's name is mentioned in the prologues and the introductions of many of the epistles of St. Paul um, in 2 Corinthians and Philippians and 1 Corinthians and 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians and Philemon. All of these, um, the introduction where Paul is introducing himself to the people he is writing, he is mentioning also that the greeting is coming both from him and Timothy. So Timothy was someone who worked very closely with, um, with St. Paul. And his name is also mentioned in the final farewell in the epistle to the Romans um, in Romans chapter 16. St. Timothy was sent to Corinth by St. Paul um, because of the turbulence that took place there before the writing of the first letter. There was divisions in the church and um, St. Paul sent St. Timothy there to try to address the issue. Um, uh, and uh, after writing the letter to the Philippians, um, St. Sim Timothy was sent um, to Philippi. He was also sent to Thessalonica to write a report before the writing of the first letter to its believers. 
Um, and in the letter to the Hebrews, the Apostle Paul points to Timothy's imprisonment um, and release. So it seems that after Paul's first release from his imprisonment in 63 AD, because St. Paul was imprisoned twice, after his first imprisonment and release, um, he left St. Timothy to care for um, for Ephesus, for all of the affairs in Ephesus. St. Paul has spent quite a bit of time um, in Ephesus ministering there, and, 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 and St. Paul um, left St. Timothy to care for the people from the city of Ephesus. So from all of this, kind of very, very quick overview of kind of the role of St. Timothy, th at least that we know of in the scriptures, um, there is we can see that there is a very close relationship that existed uh, between St. Paul and St. Timothy, and St. Paul had full confidence um, in him. There are many times where St. Paul calls him my son, my true son, my dear son, my trusted son. Um, so there was definitely a very close bond of love between the two. Um, the date of writing, um, so it's believed that this epistle, 1 Timothy, was written in the year 64 or 65 AD, which is after the release of St. Paul from his first imprisonment, um, which happened in 63 AD. The purpose of the letter, so this one, this uh, epistle is known as a pastoral epistle. There is a, a group of epistles like uh, to St. Timothy, to Titus, to Philemon um, that are known as pastoral epistles. And they're pastoral because St. Paul is writing a letter to um, one of his disciples or some other person in order to give them personal encouragement, pastoral care for them. And in this case, St. Timothy was a bishop. So he is telling St. Timothy, he's encouraging him in his ministry, he's encouraging him, telling him how is it that he should conduct the affairs of the church, how is it that he should... Um, um, so again, uh, this was called a pastoral epistle. St. Paul is writing to St. Timothy, who is his disciple, um, for pastoral reasons to give him personal guidance and encouragement um, in his ministry. Um, and he tells him uh, about... He tells him about certain church orders and rules and procedures uh, regarding worship. Um, he talks to him about different characteristics of the pastors that he should be uh, uh, ordaining, like the priests and the clergy he should be ordaining, as well as what their duty should be, um, especially uh, fighting against heresies and other uh, problems that were happening in the church at the time. And then finally, he focuses on the pastoral relationships that connect um, uh, like the, the 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 priest or the clergy with uh, with the people. Okay, so that's kind of a brief overview view of the book. <coughs> How old he was? Uh, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure, but I would imagine he was relatively young uh, at this stage. Yeah. Uh, for forty six uh, uh, A.D during the time of the first missionary journey of St. Paul. Sixty-four. When he was, when he converted, he became a bishop? No, 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 it came later on. Yeah, I'm not... I mean, he w he was he was a disciple, but it doesn't mean that being a disciple he was a bishop immediately. Something that he would have been given to him later, but I'm not sure exactly the time. Yeah. Okay. So we'll start reading the chapter. Um, so we'll try to get through the first two chapters today. God willing. 
So he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God, our Savior, and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope, to Timothy, a true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God, our Father, and Jesus Christ, our Lord. Um, so as we mentioned before, every single Pauline epistle starts with what word? Paul, except for Hebrews. Okay, and we said that the reason is because Hebrews, um, uh, St. Paul is writing to the Jewish people, which kind of, uh, he was not very popular with them because he always spoke against circumcision and the ne necessity of circumcision. So he didn't want to start out by putting his name or else they might not even read the book altogether. So, so every single epistle, he writes it, he starts with his name, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He always emphasizes that his apostleship is from Jesus Christ because what is very unique about St. Paul is that he is the only apostle who was not an apostle during the time of the life of Christ. Right? Every other apostle was selected by Christ personally while he was alive. Right, And it, now we know, of course, St. Paul was also selected by Christ personally, but it didn't happen during his life. It happened later on. So there were many people that would argue that St. Paul was not a legitimate apostle or that the things that he is saying are coming from his, his own mind, especially because, again, his message was not very popular among the Jews in the sense that, that he was speaking against the necessity for circumcision and for continuing to follow the various aspects of the law of Moses and so on. So he, em he emphasizes that his message and his authority is coming from um, uh, Jesus Christ, okay? Um, and, 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 and through the commandment of God, by the commandment of our God and our Savior uh, and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope, meaning God is the one who commanded me to be this. God is the one who ordained me to be this. Like this is the will of God that I am an apostle and the will of God that I write to you. So take the words that I say to you as coming from God, as not coming from myself, okay? Um, <clears throat> and this also implies that the ministry of St. Timothy that the election of St. Timothy to be bishop and, and, and his, his pastoral care um, is all also according to the will of God. All of this is according to the, the, the will of God. As I urged you when I went to, into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. Um, St. John Chrysostom, he speaks about this. He says, St. Paul did not mention certain persons by name in order not to embarrass them through open and direct reprimand. The apostle found in the city some bad disciples of the Jews who wanted to force believers to observe the Mosaic law. This is a subject that the apostle deals with in his other epistles. They did so not because they were prompted by their consciences, but in search for vainglory. They wanted to have their own disciples since they envied the blessed Paul and resisted him. So um, one of the issues that there was in the early church was that of the false teachers. And the false teachers had various motivations. Um, the group that we called the Judaizers, they were the group that were promoting the Jewish faith as being necessary in parallel with Christianity. So essentially in order for, according to them, in order for someone to be Christian, they first had to become Jewish or and, and then become Christian. So everything that the Jews practiced all of the laws, the Mosaic law, the law of Moses, they would have to adopt it as well. Um, and of course, for the Jews, this was easy. They grew up their whole life with the law of Moses. They knew all of it, all the prophecies. They were already circumcised. They uh, knew everything about the law. And so it was an easy thing for them to um, to say that because it cost them nothing. They, they were already had that. Um, but 
when you speak now about the Gentiles, so these are pagans, they are people who are polytheists, they believe in wha whatever gods, they lived in different cultures, the Greek culture, other cultures, they had nothing to do with Judaism, they had nothing to do with the prophets, they, the idea of circumcision was very foreign to them, um, and they did not practice it. So when you tell them, the Gentiles, like, hey, if you want to be a believer of Christ, if you want to be a Christian, then you have to first pass through all of these things, this, these Jewish things, right? It became a very big burden, right? And actually prevented people from coming to the faith. So there were groups of people who were promoting this, okay? And here St. John Chrysostom is saying they're doing this not because this is what they really believed, but they're doing this because they want to, to, to kind of have a place of prominence. They felt jealous of the following that St. Paul had. You know, he had like more likes than they had, I guess. Um, and so they, 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 they were jealous of him. And they wanted to have people, their own followers, their own disciples. They, they you know, like people who just like argue because they just like the argument and because the argument br builds a sense of like authority. Like when I stand in front of a group of people and no matter what it is that's said by the church, I'm just going to contradict it and argue against it and I may make a loud voice and then people are going to come and listen to me in the hope that what I'm seeking for myself, like status and glory, right? And so this is what he is, he is saying. And he mentions here certain things. He says that they teach, so he's speaking to St. Timothy, he's saying, you know, take care of this situation and teach people the true doctrine Right, so they do not fall into believing all of these false things that are being taught by these false teachers. And he mentions here, he says, um, th uh, they teach no other doctrine, right? Meaning no other doctrine than what, what is it that Christ taught and what the apostles preach. And not to give heed to fables, endless genealogies, which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. So what are these things? So fables is likely referring to um, two different things. One is the mythologies. So we know of like the Greek mythology and all the different gods and the, um, you know, the stories of the gods and whatnot. So when as far as when it's coming from a, from a Gentile background, the fables are the mythologies that they have. Or, you know, like one of the difficult things for someone who grew up, uh, you know, as a Greek person, for instance, who had been taught all their life that all of the mention of these Greek gods, that these are real and, and this is the origin of everything came through the gods and Zeus and 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 you know Aphrodite and like all of these gods are real, and then to to tell them no, none of these gods are real, and there's only one God, and this one God is the one who created everything. You don't need a God of this and a God of this and a God of this. There's only one God, right? So of course, um, for them to to completely cut that out of their belief system was difficult because it also had become a very cultural thing, right? It was part of their culture. So in a sense, um, for them to come to the faith. They are not just abandoning um, kind of a wrong belief system that they had, but they are also abandoning a big part of what made them to be Greek and a big part of what actually they were proud of, that kind of heritage and that tradition and that, you know. And maybe the same could be said of Egyptians, right? Like the, 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 the ancient Egyptians had like a very um, proud legacy of what is it that they were able to accomplish. I mean, a long time ago, Egypt was like the most advanced nation on the earth. Um, and the kind of things that they were able to accomplish and all the history and dynasties of their pharaohs and the, their Egyptian gods and whatnot. And then so for someone back then, you know, as a, as, a, as a Coptic person, which is an Egyptian person, to then leave that behind and believe in Christ, 
right? Like they're leaving behind not just the religious belief, but they're leaving behind a lot of the cultural aspects as well. And that's why you find still that there is, you know, cultural parts of, um, you know, of, of, of the Egyptian culture that we still find in the church. Um, because because obviously like the church was founded in that in that environment. I, I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying like it's natural that there are cultural elements that are found in the church. But here he is saying the things that are against the faith, these fables, right? So it could be from the Gentile side, these mythologies, um, and also from the Jewish side, right? From the Jewish side, they are they are emphasizing the law of Moses. They're emphasizing circumcision. They're emphasizing um, the feasts and the fast that they have been given by God in the Old Testament, and they want to cling to these, right? But again, for from the perspective of a Gentile Christian, um, these things have no value to them, right? This is not something God is commanding them to do in the New Testament. It has no relevance to them whatsoever. Um, and so they are coming directly to Christ. They're not passing through Judaism in order to get to him. As far as when he says endless genealogies, so what is he referring to the genealogies? Um, so for the Jewish people, um, why is genealogy important? You're the son of Abraham or you're the son of Aaron. You know, like if you're the son of Aaron, then what should you be? You should be a priest. Right. Like you have a status. Right. So, again, for the Jewish person, the idea of where you come from, what tribe are you from the tribe of Judah? Well, that's the kingly tribe, like the tribe of the royal tribe where all the kings in the tribe of Judah came from. Right. So so for a Jewish person, the idea of clinging to my 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 history, my genealogy, right, my heritage, it was also something very important. Right. And so you could have someone who is trying to say, for instance, like, well, because I'm from, you know, the tribe of Aaron or the tribe of Levi and I'm coming as a, as, a, as a descendant of Aaron, then somehow I should have a special status or whatever, right? Instead of saying, oh, no, everyone is equal. Like, like, like in Christ, we are all equal. There isn't, there isn't a special status that is given to someone according to the tribe that they have been born in. Um, <coughs> also, from the Gentile culture, right, um, also, there is an importance of ancestry. So, for instance, if you are a descendant of Alexander the Great, if you're a descendant of, again, according to their mythology, you know, they believed that there were, there were human beings that were born from the gods or demigods who were like half god, half human. So if you believe that, you know, your great-great-great-grandfather was, you know, Hercules, um, then, you know, that's an important thing for you, right? So you want to you keep that. So, again, like when, when you have a group of people as diverse as the Jews and the Gentiles that are all coming to the faith, living in these cities where it's just like a very diverse group. Um, the early church had a very big challenge in order how to bring all of these people to the church and to teach them and help them to understand what the Christian faith is while they are coming with all of this baggage of all their preconceived ideas um, of what is important. Okay. Um, third, St. Irenaeus um, he describes these um, genealogies uh, as could be Gnostic heresies. So Gnosticism was a big heresy that existed in that age, in the early church. Um, and it was a group of people who claimed, so the word Gnostic comes from Gnosis, which is the same word, base root word as knowledge. So they believed that they had like the real truth, the real knowledge um, of, of reality. Um, and they had, and they believed that, for instance, that um, the physical matter was was corrupt. Was was evil. They 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 didn't 
They didn't accept it. They believed that only the spiritual mattered and not the physical, which were, of course, in Christianity, we don't believe that. We believe God created both the physical and the spiritual, and he created them to be good. Um, the physical became corrupted because of sin, but in its nature, it is good. It is created by God. And actually, in, in, in the kingdom of heaven, we will have our glorified bodies. We'll have physical bodies still. So, the, But this is one of the wrong beliefs that the Gnostics had. But they, one of the things they believed is that there was a supreme being, like a god, who had produced offspring, um, and that therefore there could be people who are related to and the descendants of this god. Okay, So that could also be another type of genealogy uh, that people could be focusing on, um, and which of course is, is false. Okay, So he spoke about to avoid disputes, he's saying which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. So we can maybe think a little bit about dispute, right? So I will ask you, is it wrong to have a dispute? What is a dispute? Dialogue, okay. It's a dialogue that is kind of implying that there is disagreement, right? There is, you know, more than one side of the argument. So why why is he equating here that disputes is contrary to godly edification? It's not edifying. It's not edifying, okay. But so but we said is disputes wrong? Is it wrong to have a dispute? It depends. It depends. So you're saying no, and you're saying it depends. So even among Christians, so you're saying um, between Christians it's wrong. So for instance, we have councils. And in those councils, you have like all of the bishops come together and they discuss issues and they have different opinions about those issues. So they have, I mean, you could call it arguments about them, disputes about them in a sense, right? And, and the goal of those disputes is to come up with the truth, like the goal is we are arguing, we have different perspective, different points of view, and in the end we want to make a decision that is good, right, and, and right. Even in Acts chapter 15 when, um, when the apostles got together in a council to decide um, what are the practices that the Gentiles should follow, right, they came in council, and of course it's not recorded <laughs> what exactly happened in that meeting, but you can imagine that when you have that many people come together that different people have different opinions, Okay, so maybe not everyone was in 100% agreement, right, from the very beginning uh, of what is it that should be done, right? So it is possible even among Christians to have disputes. Um, St. Saint, Saint, uh, Paul and St. Barnabas had a dispute about whether they should bring Mark the Apostle with them on their missionary journey. St. Paul and St. Peter had a dispute about, um, because St. Peter was kind of, not being straightforward about his belief about the necessity of circumcision. Um, so what makes a dispute good and what makes it bad? What you're disputing about? Okay, what do you mean? Use the microphone. So in this case, they were having disputes about fables and endless genealogies, right? So if what you're disputing about is something that doesn't bring a person closer to God or edify a person, 
then that's not a dispute that's worth having, right? It, because all you're going to get is a separation from there. And then both people, both parties, regardless of the outcome, are going to walk away less than they walked in, right? Because both parties are now not in unity. So that's an over something that's not worth losing unity over. Okay, so if the goal of the dispute is um, something that is worthless or not edifying, then the dispute is not is not a godly dispute. Or if it results in the people being like losing the unity among themselves, um, or being angry or upset with each other. Okay. Yes. Mm. So you're saying that the topic of the dispute isn't as important as uh, rather the way that the dispute was held and the respect that they had for each other and the goal that they had and that they walk out in unity yeah. rather than the content of the... Yes, okay. That they all agree upon and, and walk out solid. Okay, good. Does anyone else have? Megan? Ego. to what the other person is saying. If I find the truth in what, what they're saying, that's very important. It's not just like I'm right. And okay, that's very good too. Because a lot of times we get into disputes or arguments with no intention at all of even listening to the other person or altering our view based on what the other person says. We're just coming to argue and defending our perspective and without an open mind, okay? And actually, this was a big part of this problem. Right. The, 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 the problem here was not just that they were arguing about these things, but that, the, again, we're talking about false teachers, like the false teachers who are coming to, f to argue and to say this. What was their goal? Their goal was not because they really believed that this was true and they wanted people to believe in the truth. Their goal was is to gain attention for themselves and to become prominent like St. Paul because they were jealous of him. This is what St. Irenaeus says. He says, They make the teachings of the Lord corrupt and prove themselves to be evil interpreters of the good word of God. They destroy the faith of many people by taking them away from the way of truth as they hide under the veil of knowledge. So they're like pretending as though that they have knowledge and understanding and teaching it as the truth, even though they don't know. They deceive the simple with their eloquent words and good-looking faces while they destroy them ruthlessly. Right? So, so... It's not just the idea that we have a conflict or a disagreement. And it can be argued that there are some things worth arguing about more than others, right? Because there are some things that people argue about that in the end, like, the argument itself is kind of fruitless. Um, like, why are you, you're, 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 you're nitpicking, right? Like, we can say you're nitpicking things that are not important. Um, but what might be important to one person is maybe not as important to another person. Um, but the goal, the main issue here 
is that the things that were being argued about were just argument for the sake of argument and vainglory. Okay? Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. Okay? Um, so the purpose of the commandment is love. The Pharisees, when they would focus on the commandments, they'd focus on the commandments of God. Their focus was not love, right? Their, their focus was um, kind of this theoretical perfectionism um, and judging everyone who did not measure up to the perfection of the law, while at the same time they believed that they themselves were measuring up to the perfection of the law. They were following every law to perfection. They were the gold standard, the model that everyone should follow. And, and then they looked at everyone else who didn't follow um, that standard as they believed that they did, and they looked down on them. So their understanding of the commandment was the commandment was uh, a means of judging, right? Not a means of salvation. Like when Christ preached the commandments, he preaches them as a means of salvation. He says, do this and you will be saved. You know, like, like do, do the, the good works which are there for you to be saved. Whereas the Pharisees, when they look at the same commandment, they, they're not looking at it as, well, we want to motivate people to follow God's commandments so they can be saved. Instead, they're saying, look, these people are not following God's commandments, so they're bad, right? They're, they're, they're less than us. So the purpose of the commandment is love. St. John Chrysostom, he said, when people do not have love, they envy those with a good reputation and become anxious to attain authority. And for love of authority, they come up with heresies. Okay, so what is he saying? He's saying, because these false teachers did not have love in their hearts and their desire was simply to have authority and they were envious of St. Paul and because he had a good reputation and he had a following, right? So the, they, they came up with heresies just to make arguments to try to disprove what St. Paul is saying. Like St. Paul is preaching all these things and just because they want to have a voice and want to speak, they come up with all these contrary disputes and say, no, this is, this is the truth, right? Come and listen to us. Not again because they even believed it to be true, but because they just wanted people to listen to them. From, uh, from which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. Okay? So those who strayed from the truth uh, and strayed from love, desire to have authority for personal gain, not to edify others. They don't even understand what they are saying, okay, or what the word of God says, nor do they even practice it, right? They have, they have turned aside to idle talk. All they care about is desire to be teachers of the law, right? And they don't understand what it is that they are saying. They don't practice it. They don't know it, but they simply want to have the authority as though that they did, okay? So they speak idly, to gain prominence, not to edify the people, okay? So to sum up the condition of these false teachers, we can say they deviated from the path of love, which led them to a state of like internal emptiness. Um, and so they wanted to conceal that by claiming to be teachers and defenders of the law. They didn't want anyone to see that they're, they're phony. They don't want anyone to see that they're really, they don't have anything. You know, maybe you can kind of uh, imagine even in the modern day where we have people who are pretending that they are miracle workers or pretending like they are prophets, that they have received 
from God some special revelation that is unique to them and that they have been called to preach that revelation to the world and to gain attention for themselves like, hey, I figured out, you know, when the end of the world is going to be. I figured out, you know, whatever by studying the Bible. Um, and so come and come and listen to me um, or look, I can heal these people. I can do these things or I have this fiery messages or I can speak in tongues or whatever the case is because I want to bring attention to myself. Okay. But because um, they really didn't have anything, okay, so they were like insecure in who they were and just trying to pretend, pretend to be something that they are not, and they were ignorant, right, of what the law was really teaching, what the law was really saying. So all they did is argue, all they did is um, teach different heresies, not again designing designed to make lead people to the truth, but simply to. Um, have a, a place of prominence and to have a voice for themselves. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. It's kind of interesting. We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Okay, what does that mean? Um, so St. Paul, again, because he had been uh, attacked so much uh, because of his beliefs about circumcision, he wanted everyone to understand that he had nothing against the law. Like the law is good. God gave us the law, right? But only if you use the law as it was intended. Because in the Old Testament, right, the people didn't understand the purpose of the law. They didn't understand the reasons why God g said all the things that he said, right? And so then you find that the law is being abused, right? Where, 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 where the, the, you know, when Christ said, the, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. What did he mean? He meant that God created the law. He created the Sabbath. He created all the other laws for the spiritual benefit of man, right? But he didn't create man, right, for the Sabbath. It was the other way. The law's purpose is to serve man, not man's purpose is to serve the law, right? So the law actually, and we see even in the Old Testament, there were times where, there was exceptions, right? So, for instance, when King David was on the run and he was starving and there was no food, and so he went into the temple and he ate of what? The showbread. The showbread is bread that stays in the temple um, that's supposed to be only eaten by the priests, and it was unlawful for anyone other than the priest to eat them. But in the case of King David, he had no food, right? And so that was the only food. So he ate of it, and God did not condemn him for what he did. And actually Christ even used this example to the Pharisees as an example of th that the law is about mercy, not just about strict commandments, right? What is the purpose that God said to the that, that the only the priest should eat of the showbread? There was a spiritual meaning behind it, right? But, but in every case, there might be some exceptional situation that could happen that would bring someone to do something that maybe is not originally what God had in t had designed. Like I'll give you an example even in the modern day, right? Like, so we believe that baptism is by immersion and that you baptize babies um, or whoever is going to be baptized by immersion. But there are situations where maybe a child is born premature and they're not healthy enough to come to the church and to be baptized by immersion. So we baptize them by just anointing them with the water that's been prayed on, right? Is it the case that God is not going to accept such a baptism? because it was not done in the way that it should be done. Well, no, because, again, it, God is not legalistic. He knows, he knows that the, the law, 
or the, the right or the way that God intends for things to happen, yes, when there is no obstacle to it, when there's no problem with it, right? But if there is a problem with it, right, if there's something that it's going to harm the people, not edify the people, then there can be flexibility. Um, for instance, um, when we come and take communion before liturgy, we should be fasting, but some people might have medical conditions that makes them not be able to fast. Um, does that mean that those people should never take communion? No, because again, the, the idea of fasting before communion is to show reverence to the sacrament and to acknowledge that it's not just like any other regular food. So we are like have empty stomachs when we come and partake of it. So it's designing, uh, it's designed to make us be reverent. But when the person who has a medical condition eats, it's they're not being irreverent. It is out of their control. It is not something that they can choose, right? So again, God permits, right, there to be exceptions, right? W we have to understand what is the purpose of the law. So he's saying we know that the law is good, but only if one uses it lawfully, even if we e the only if we understand it. So the message that St. Paul was trying to teach the people was that Christ came and fulfilled the law, that salvation was through him, not through circumcision. Circumcision was an act that was done as a symbol in the Old Testament and that has now been replaced by baptism and that salvation doesn't come through circumcision. Salvation comes through baptism and belief in Christ. Okay? Comes through the sacrifice that Christ made. So so the 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 the, the understanding of the law is not to condemn saying, Oh no, all along, all throughout history, circumcision was bad. No, it's not. But it had a purpose. It had a it had a reason to be. Right? Whereas now that reason is gone. It doesn't have a reason to be anymore. It's been superseded by something that wasn't there before. Okay. Um, in Romans 10.4 it says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Right? Meaning the purpose, it doesn't, that doesn't mean that he's ending the law. It means that the purpose of the law is to lead everyone to Christ. Right? That is the purpose of the law, to lead everyone to him. The law was intended to do so, and Christ is the fulfillment of the law. So, so he is, he's emphasizing again, I don't believe that the law is bad, but we have to understand the law and what its purpose is. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. Okay, so he's saying the law was not made for the righteous. Why is the law not made for the righteous? The righteous by their nature are already following the law, right? So by, by, by definition, it is the sinner, it is the lawless person who needs the law. And actually, more than that, it is the law who made us realize that we were lawless. It is the law that made us realize that we were not following the law. You know, when we were studying Second Kings, um, we were studying uh, about King Josiah, who after a period of, I think it was like 85 years of Israel um, not following the law, had completely forgotten what the law was. And the generation that lived at the time had no idea what the law was, had no idea what God actually had commanded them. And even though King Josiah was a righteous king and he did all that he knew what to do in order to follow God, he was, he was ignorant of what the law was until they happened to discover the book of the law uh, in the temple. 
and when they read it, it says that King Josiah, he tore his clothes because he realized that they were not following the law. And he, he brought all the people and he read the law out loud to all the people for them to hear. So when even with our best intentions, right, like unless we know what God is actually commanding, um, then we are, we are not going to be following the law. We are going to be lawless. So the, and here he lists all kinds of people, all kinds of categories of people. And this includes a lot of the people who were among the Gentiles, especially because they didn't have the Old Testament law to, to, to tell them what is it that they should be doing. So when you have, say, St. Paul go and he preaches to all these places around the world and he talks to them about Christ and he talks to them about the salvation and the Messiah and all these things, okay? Well, let's say you're one of those people that hears this message and you're like, yeah, I believe that. I believe, right? But you might also be all these things. You might be a murderer, you're a fornicator, a sodomite, a kidnapper, a liar, a perjurer, like all those things might also be you, right? So when you have people coming to Christ, they are coming with all these things, right? And so the law is necessary in order for us to know, well, this Christ that I believe in, this Christ that I believe died for my sins, who is God, who I want to worship and submit my will to him, what is he telling me about the way that I should live? Well, I don't know until I'm told. So here he's telling me, these are the things that you should do and these are the things um, that you should not do. So he's emphasizing that the law is necessary. Right, because without the law, how would we even know the moral law that we should, the moral code, the moral rules that we should be living by as Christians? And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me, because He counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly, in unbelief. Right. So Saint Paul praises God here, and actually, what he is doing is he is relating to the people he is he, he's referring to like all those people like the murderers and the liars and all that saint paul was a murderer saint paul murdered christians right before he became one so by saying this he is not he is not saying and i am better than you he's saying i am like you like i i also was ignorant i also didn't know the truth and when christ revealed the truth to me i changed my life to conform to that truth that I now understood, that I now knew. So he is saying this in a sense to, to, to show that he was not looking down on those people who, who suffered from all of those things. He himself was among them, right? And when he understood the real, even though he, as a Pharisee, of course he had the law, but he didn't understand the law and he didn't understand the Old Testament and what it pointed to in Christ. So, so even though he, he had a full understanding of the law according to the Pharisees, but he didn't understand the meaning. This is, again, he's saying the law is good, but only if we use it in the right way, only if we understand it in the right way. So he himself, he's, he's saying, um, I'm thanking Christ because he counted me faithful despite my unworthiness, despite my lack of, of ability, despite my ignorance, because he says that I'm an insolent man, a blasphemer, a persecutor, right? And the reason that he is where he is is not because of his good works or because of his talents or because of any attribute of himself, but because of he obtained mercy. And the reason that he obtained mercy is because he did it ignorantly in unbelief. And this is what separates um, uh, like the, the, 
the, the people who, who God has mercy on them and has patience with them and wants to lead them to the truth are those people who are maybe living in darkness because they've never seen the light, right? Versus those people who have seen the light and choose to run into the darkness, right? This is, not th this is two different groups of people. And God does not treat them the same, right? The people who have lived in darkness their whole life is like a blind man who's never seen the light before, cannot even comprehend the light, cannot understand that there is a light. What does it even look like? What does it even mean? And a blind man, right? Like if you lived in a world where there was only blind people, there was no one who could see, all the blind people would believe that that's the natural state. Like no one would think that there was anything wrong with them. Right? It's like that's just how we are. We have four senses. We don't have five. That's what we would teach our children in school. So we have four senses. And we would somehow manage to get around get 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 around and do things as I mean, I don't know how, but but we would. We would do whatever it is we could do with the four senses, and no one would ever say that there's something wrong with us. Just like today with our five senses that we have, we don't say that there was something wrong because we're lacking the sixth sense. Right? Like we're we're fine with the five that we have. We we consider people who, who appear to have a sixth sense as being weird. Like how can they do the things that they do, right? Um but we're content with the five that we have, right? So, so Saint Paul, like a person, a person who is living in, in darkness and blindness, right? God looks at them in mercy because they have no context to understand that they're missing something, they're lacking something. And so, when He comes with the light, and the, for the first time their eyes are open, they realize that there's been a whole world that's existed all along that they were completely ignorant of, oblivious to, not comprehending. It's always been there, but they never knew that it was there, and they could have never guessed that it would be there. And so that experience of having gone from the darkness to the light is a life-changing one that causes them to like leave their whole life behind and follow him, right? Like that's that's how powerful this these experiences are, because you and you and your faith is so strengthened because you can't deny the the magnitude of being able to see for the first time. Contrary to that, though are the people who believe that they are in the light or the people who are in the light but choose to leave the light to go back into blindness, right? For those people, right, um, they, they will receive a stricter judgment, right? Because they've already seen, they've already heard, they've already had all the benefits of the thing that those other people have been denied and have not had all throughout. So when you, this is why um, you know, he says, to whom much is given, much will be required. Because those people who have been given much, right, are expected to work with the much that they have been given. Just like in the parable of the talents, right? Those who have been given much are expected to work much. Whereas those who have been given little are expected to bring in little, right? So we can't compare the person who has been given much and say, look what, is, what it is that they're able to, to do and what they're able to, 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 to you know, to follow and the faith that they have and whatnot, and then compare that to someone who's been in darkness, right? So St. Paul here obtained mercy because he was in the darkness and came to the light. The Pharisees did not, right? Because they believed themselves to be in light, right? And, and this is why even in the conversation that he had with the Pharisees after he healed the, the man born blind, and, and, and he's saying to them, what? Like he's saying to them that you are still in, in darkness, because you believe yourself to be righteous. You believe yourself to see the light, but you are actually living in darkness, right? You can't see, right? So, so they have been given the law. They have been given everything by God in order to illuminate them. And yet because of their, um, because of their, their, their stubbornness, 
because of their hatred, because of their jealousy, because of their envy, they chose to, to remain in this darkened state, and even though they had the option to see the light, they had been given the option, but they rejected it. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Okay, so in his life, we see Christ interacting with all kinds of people, all kinds of sinful people, and especially those people who were outcasts, who were considered irredeemable, who were the harlots and the tax collectors and the people whom everybody had judged and said there is no hope for these people, there is nothing good that can come from them. And yet when they found salvation in Christ, right, they became like saints. Like St. Mary Magdalene, she had seven demons who were cast out of her, and she became a saint, right? Um, so they, having started in the darkness, came to the light and excelled in the light, like maybe more than all of us, right? Um, and no one at the beginning could have judged that that would have been the case. No one would have said um, that these people are able to reach such a status, right? Whereas the Pharisees believed themselves to be righteous. Simon the Pharisee, when he was in the house um, dining with Christ, and then the sinful, adulterous woman came and started to wash his feet, he was offended at this woman. And he, s he felt like, like it is beneath me for, for her to come into my house and wash the feet of Christ in front of me, like we're having a sophisticated conversation. Like, why are you, why are, why are you, what are you doing? Like, uh, you know, we read that story, you know, and it's like we read it so often. But can you actually imagine that happening, like, in your house? Like, if you're, you're having, like, a dinner party with the bishop, right, or the pope, and all of a sudden this random woman comes from the streets, and she falls down at his feet and starts to wipe his feet. Like, we were about to eat. I mean, like, wha why? What are you doing? Like, like it would be annoying, wouldn't you think? Like, if it actually happened to you, like, it would be annoying. You would, it wouldn't be easy to tolerate such an event, right? Happening, especially when you say, you know what, I've been waiting for a year to, to get a visit for the bishop, I've been waiting 10 years to get a visit from the bishop, right? And I want to use every moment, right? And here's this random stranger is coming and doing this. Like, it's easy for us even to judge Simon the Pharisee and say he was just a bad man, you know, because of his attitude and what he had. But maybe all of us would have done the same. Maybe, maybe all of us would have thought the same, um, except Christ did not. So St. Paul is saying, I'm the last person to have been considered worthy to be an apostle. I am all the sinful things, right? And that's why he says that I am the chief of the sinners. And he says that really, like he's not saying that as kind of like that false humility that we like to say, like we say, oh, I'm the worst, I'm the last, I'm the whatever. Uh, no, he, he actually believes that he is the, the least, uh, especially considering all that he's been given, especially given like seeing all the miracles that God has done through him, all of the, the manifestations of Christ that he has seen. And he did all of this while he was still a persecutor, an insolent man, a blasphemer, a killer of Christians, and so on. When St. Paul, um, or Saul at the time, when he went to visit Ananias, okay, who was the one whom he went to uh, after he had lost his eyesight, and, and God had, uh, had, had spoken to Ananias before, and he told him Saul is going to come. And Ananias' answer was like, do you know who this man is? Like, he's, he's a, he, he kills your people. Like, why are you sending him to me? Like, and then, and then God says, no, he is a chosen vessel of mine. Right? He is a chosen vessel. So, God knew how St. Paul was going to respond and react and who, who he was going to be because he understood that this was not for his own glory, but this was for the glory of God, and he accepted all his faults and all his sin 
uh, and failures as such, and he did not try to win uh, anyone to himself, but only for salvation. However, for this reason, I obtained mercy, that in me first, Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. For some reason, this is the first time as I've read through this epistle, it's the first time that this verse, like, I feel like I'd never read this verse before. I don't know why. Okay? Um, but I'm pretty sure it's been there. Um, <laughs> so, what is he saying? Christ to show him all this grace it shows that he is long-suffering and patient with us even when we are fighting against him our entire lives good and he says it's a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life almost like the reason or one of the reasons that God chose him specifically to be the apostle is because everyone knows that he is the last person to deserve it and so if St. Paul could be saved, then anyone could be saved, right? Like that's the message. You know, we look at St. Paul today, of course, as an apostle, as a saint, as a righteous man, as the writer of the majority of the New Testament, like we, we revere him, right? But can you imagine, I mean, if you were one of the Christians that lived at the time of Saul, the Pharisee, and that some of your family members were killed by him? Like, can you imagine how you would see him then? and the reputation that he had in the church at then, and actually the idea even that the early church was able to accept him as an apostle says something about the church. Again, try to put this in modern terms. If you had a person who was a murderer of Christians, and then that person became a bishop in the church, and then he was going to come to visit us, right? I would imagine that some people would have issue with it. Like, some people might not be too happy with that. And they might say, like, this person doesn't deserve to have this rank or status or reverence or we kiss his hand and prostrate in front of him. Right? Like, especially if I was personally affected by some of the things that he had done. Right? So, of course, at the time, everybody knew who he was before. Right? And they could clearly see, like, this man did not deserve all of the mercy that God gave him, right? And now look at what he is. And now look at what God is using him for and using him to do. So he is like an icon in that sense. Like he is the icon of the sinful man who became a saint and was accepted by God through the, through the, the mercy of God. And everywhere he would go, that is the message that people would receive even without him speaking because they knew who he was, right? They knew he did not deserve this, okay? So, so this is what this is saying. Here's what St. John Chrysostom says. It says, He was shown mercy so that other sinners would not despair of obtaining mercy. Everyone is ascertained to receive similar mercy. The apostle shows great humility as he calls himself the chief or first of sinners, a blasphemer, a persecutor, and unworthy to be called an apostle. Yet he wants to serve as an example. Right? He wants to serve as an example. He wants everyone to not just hear his words, but he himself is, is, the, is the message. He himself is the word. That people would see him, see his life, and say, this is the mercy of God. 
This is how God is patient and long-suffering with us and doesn't want to judge us quickly, but he wants to give us every chance and every opportunity to repent. Now to the King Eternal, immortal, invisible, to God, who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. So here it says uh, in verse 18, this charge I commit to you. So St. Paul is giving the apostolic like mission to St. Timothy to continue the mission. Um, and he's saying, according to the prophecies previously made. So it seems like there was some prophecies that was made about Timothy from before, um, maybe either at the time of like his birth or his baptism or when he began his pastoral service or at some point that he was going to become a bishop and continue this work. Okay, We don't have more information about it, but, but there, there was some kind of prophetic message. Having faith and good conscience, which some, having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I deliver to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Okay, so here he's giving example of those people who had begun in the service, begun in the ministry and in the faith, um, who were teachers with good conscience, okay, but fell away. Okay, and this is intended for all of us, especially those who have been in the church for a long time, not to become complacent or to believe that just because we have been here for a long time, then that means we are somehow secure or safe. Actually, the ones whom the devil wants to attack and destroy the most are those who have been historically the most stable, um, the most grounded, the most um, secure, because they are the ones... You know, like if you play, like, what is that game? Jenga? <laughs> like, <laughs> when, when you remove, like, the key piece, then suddenly everything falls, right? When, when King David fell, it made, it, 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 you know, he was the king. He was the, he was a king and a prophet. When he fell into sin, it would have a far greater impact on all the people, on all the kingdom, than if there's some random guy sin, Right? The, the higher that a person goes up the ladder of righteousness, of faith, of rank in the church, um, they are actually in more danger, right? Not less. Not because they have more experience, not because they are maybe have deeper spiritual understanding that makes them safe. No, actually, they're in more danger than they were before. And, and, and we see examples like Judas, for instance. I mean, he, was, he worked miracles like the other apostles did, Right? Um, he, he saw all the other miracles that were done. He was one of the 12 original chosen by, by Christ. And yet we see his end. Here also, he's mentioning these people. Hymenaeus is mentioned also in 2 Timothy chapter 2. And St. Paul describes him as having strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past. So he was presenting this false teaching by wrongly interpreting the words of Christ about the resurrection um, and essentially denying the resurrection of the body on the last day. This is the thing that Hymenaeus was teaching. Um, Alexander, he's, he's mentioned in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He's probably the same Alexander. Uh, and he says, it says, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. May God repay him according to his works. That's what's said about him in 2 Timothy. Um, and these two men, 
He says what? Whom I deliver to Satan. What does it mean to be delivered to Satan? They are excommunicated. Yes. As who else did we, that, that same phrase was used um, by St. Paul being delivered to Satan in a different book. In 1 Corinthians, when there was uh, the man who was um, living in sexual immorality and, and he says that well, he delivered him to Satan, meaning he, he excommunicated him from the church, not to destroy him, but to make him to reassess, to reevaluate, to rethink his life and the decisions that he made. Um, and then that man in Second Corinthians, that he, he returned again. Um, so here, the idea of being delivered to Satan is, is for them to be chastised so that they would turn from their sin um, and live. So that's as far as we can get today. Um, does anyone have any questions about chapter one? Okay. Glory be to God forever. Amen. We can pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day. We ask for your blessing in everything, and we ask that you help us to have a pastoral mind as St. Timothy and St. Paul did. And how is it that we can serve the people? How is it that we can see the needs of those around us? How we can be protected, O Lord, from sin and from wrong teachings, and we can be beacons and lights to those people living in darkness in the world to come near them, O Lord, and to share your love with them. We ask, O Lord, for your mercy. We ask for your kindness and guidance and your protection from all evil and all temptation. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God, the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, the communion, the gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace. The peace of the Lord be with you all. Amen. And also with your spirit.